You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Theo Epstein became the youngest general manager in baseball history when he was named to that position with the Boston Red Sox in 2002. Since then, he built a team that broke Boston's curse of the Bambino, went on to win a second title with the Red Sox, then took his curse-busting ways to Chicago, where he was the architect for the 2016 Cubs team that snapped Chicago's 108-year championship drought. I recently sat down with Epstein to discuss his impressive stints in both Boston and Chicago, why Kevin Towers was so important to him, what advice he's received from Bill Belichick, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Cubs President of Baseball Operations, Theo Epstein. Theo, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, you grew up in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. What's your favorite pro sports memory as a kid? <laughs> Start with your fandom. It was, it was a great time to grow up uh, a Boston sports fan, a New England sports fan. I mean, you had um, you know, great Celtics teams. You had um, Patriots uh run to the Super Bowl in 85. You had the Doug Flutie years and the Hail Mary, which is one of my great memories. But And the Bruins going to the Cup a couple times. But, you know, definitely was a, was a baseball fan, a Red Sox fan first and foremost. So, you know, probably um, the 86 season and um, getting to attend Game 7 of the ALCS with my family was, was amazing. But then the, uh, you know, the most poignant memories were certainly... Um, about the World Series and in Game Six and living through that as a as a twelve year old was a, a life shaping experience for sure. Let's say get get that feeling into you instilled in you very quickly as, <laughs> exactly. as a young age. Uh, I read that your cousin is the one that gave Ted Williams the nickname Teddy Ball Game. Is yeah, that, is that true? That is true. Yeah, my uh, aunt was um, my aunt Barbara on my mom's side. My mom's sister was uh, her husband Fred Kaplan was. Uh, a, a very um, popular sports photographer in Boston at the time and ended up striking up a friendship with Ted Williams, did a lot of his personal photography. Actually, I have a bunch of uh, old negatives at my house of Ted Williams behind the scenes and some great stuff. And um, his uh, Freddie and Barbara's first son, my cousin Lee, um, would sometimes accompany him to, to Fenway and to shoot Ted Williams and, and so he would say, Yeah, we're going to see Teddy at the ball game, going to see Teddy at the ball game and that's how Teddy ball game started. I'm sure your kids are probably like, What are negatives? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you knew when you were at Yale that you wanted to be the GM of the Red Sox. At what point did that first become a goal of yours? Uh, well, I grew up wanting to play shortstop for the Red Sox, probably sure. like most people do. <laughs> um, and then, you know, uh, thankfully I was uh not nearly good enough, so I was able to make that my first, uh, probably my best scouting evaluation to myself um, as I was a freshman in college that my playing days were over. And I, I really didn't at that point want to be GM of the Red Sox. I just wanted to see if it was possible to stay connected to baseball because um, I knew it made me happy. And at the time, there wasn't an obvious track. You know, this is pre-money ball and uh, front offices seemed like faraway places and ivory towers where you had to either have played the game professionally or be the son of an owner or something in order to get involved. So um, sent out letters to every team uh, my freshman year of college, you know, when I was I stopped playing. So I was like, well, what can I do? And um, got a, a one letter back from the Orioles and ended up interviewing during uh, 
my spring break of my freshman year with Calvin Hill and got an internship with the Orioles. And then at that point, my goal became, okay, get, get into baseball operations because what I love about the game is what happens on the field. And then once, once I started working in baseball operations, my goal was not to be GM. It was just, you know, try to, try to be, work for people that you like and respect and be impactful. And, and that led me to, uh, you know, eventually become a GM, but I didn't set out with that specific ambition, but I knew I wanted to to work hard and and get to a point where I could impact what was happening on the field. Always motivated by wins and losses, you know, I was pretty competitive, and that's what what uh, really appealed to to me. Uh, so you interned for the Orioles for three straight summers, and then you end up out working for the Padres. Mm-hmm. At that time, you were also getting your law degree. So you're working for a baseball team, and you go to start getting your yeah. Law the law degree happened a little bit after the fact. So I. Uh, the, the good folks I got to work with at the Orioles um, ended up hiring me out in San Diego, um, Larry Lucchino, uh, Charles Steinberg, Fred Yolman Jr. So I got that job right out of college. The day after I graduated, I flew out to San Diego to start entry level. Um, then I met Kevin Towers, which was a definitely defining moment in my career. He kind of grabbed me, uh, brought me over to, to work for him in baseball operations and uh, was, was working in a really small baseball operation shop in San Diego so before the proliferation of, of you know big front offices and, and and also in a small market so we had like six people in the office in baseball operations and then I forget what happened but some somehow we screwed up a contract or something wasn't done right and um, Larry Lucchino was basically like threatening to hire a club counsel who would um, who would have a lot of say in, in baseball operations and it would work and that was um, that scared KT. Like he, he, he didn't want any lawyer kind of involved in our group. We had an awesome group dynamic in the office. And so he came to me and said, hey, I think, you know, if I, if I can say that you're going to law school, um, that might be good enough. So would you be up for that? And I said, yeah, as long as I can keep working full time, I'll go to law school. And, and he brought it to Larry and Larry was all on board with it, thought it'd be good for me. So that's how that's how I ended up in law school. So, so that we didn't have to hire a club counsel and get in the way of the fun we were having. But yeah, it, it was it was easy. You know, I was working full time and then uh, just went to the University of San Diego Law School and uh, I chose classes where they didn't take attendance, so I, didn't, uh, <laughs> I was in spring training in Peoria for six weeks while while uh, allegedly attending law school in San Diego. So I ended up working out fine. Sounds like a one approach to law school, right? <laughs> exactly. I was sitting between Eddie Epstein, who no relation, who was um, the statistical analyst, one of the first of his kind, um, a really talented guy, and sitting be- between him and Brad Sloan. Who okay. was the, the scouting director hired by KT? Okay, so you're you're sort of right in between yeah. these two guys from very different worlds, and and obviously you, the Padres utilized both of those of those guys in their front office. Was there one side versus the other that at the time you felt sort of more aligned with, and has that changed over the years? No, I mean I was both sides appealed to me, but what appealed to me most of all was you know combining both perspectives on the game. So I was literally and figuratively you know caught between these two different. Um, paradigms and Eddie and Brad, you know, didn't have a lot in common and didn't didn't talk much. Eddie approached the game um, y- y- uh, based purely on data. He, you know, a lot of times he said, you know, don't even want to see the players play because it creates biases and subjectivity, and he didn't want to see that. And then at the time in amateur scouting, you did, uh, a player, even college players, their statistics weren't even considered. It was purely. Um, an evaluation based on tools and so these two guys weren't talking to each other much but you know I was uh, just out of college and uh, you know 
pretty um, uh, approachable, uh, you know, and I was, I was kind of eager to learn. So I'd end up, you know, having lunch with both guys and hearing their perspectives. And so it just kind of dawned upon me that, you know, the the best process would be combining, you know, the best of both of these schools. And, you know, when you're evaluating a player, look at um, look at his performance and adjust it properly to try to um, – project what he's going to do going forward the way the way Eddie does and then also watch him play and get your best scouts to make accurate tools evaluations on him and project him that way and look through both lenses and get the more complete picture of the player is pretty obvious and then you know my own perspective on the, the game grew out of that experience really you mentioned KT before yeah you, you attended both of the memorial services for him earlier this year what impact what was the biggest impact he had on you well I mean for starters yeah, I think there's no way I'd, I'd be working in, in baseball operations or have my career without him. I mean, he really kind of single-handedly um, brought me over to, to baseball operations and um, took me out, took me under his wing to show me the ropes, took me out scouting, um, gave me great responsibility before I had earned it, and, and was always uh, was always looking out for me, um, always a couple steps ahead, like telling people. Um, you know, they thought I was a good guy and that they should do well by me and, um, you know, paving, paving the way for me. But specifically from a baseball standpoint, um, he was, uh, you know, the best I've ever been around at really understanding what makes players tick and understanding their makeup. And you know, I think it's easy to peg a player's makeup once you've uh, had him in your organization for a number of years or once you've been in a clubhouse with him for a year. But he would... Um, he would be able to make those judgments really quickly on a player, and um, using his uh, his intuition, his feel for people, um, his ability to connect with with people, and then and then and assess what they were all about. And um, so he he taught me that, and then just the importance of, of the mix that you have in the clubhouse, and having people that you want to rely upon, um, players who are tough, and players who uh, put the team first. And he was, uh, you know part of the clubhouse culture really he was you know it was different than a lot of GMs do their job today like he was um, one of the guys down there he was accepted and that, that gave him great access to um, you know keep his hand on the, on, the, on the pulse of the team if you know change was needed he'd be a couple steps ahead of it making change if a certain type of personality was needed he would find that guy and inject it into the clubhouse mix so he was tremendous at that and then also just um you know, very proactive guy with trades and and um, knowing when to knowing when to capitalize on a player's value and not afraid to buy low, not afraid to take big chances on players, not afraid to um, risk some some personal um, you know uh, risk his reputation um, for a big trade if he thought it was the right thing for the team to do. Larry Lucchino leaves San Diego, mm-hmm. goes to Boston, takes you with him. You're working for your your childhood team. Yeah. Was it was it everything you thought it would be initially? Was it Great to be back home. What was sort of the overall uh, take as you move back to Boston and, and you're working for the Red Sox? Yeah, you know, working for the Red Sox was always a, a dream, but it felt it, it it felt impossible. I never even really considered it because they of all the franchises, they they were kind of the most insular. It was um, uh, people didn't tend to go to the Red Sox from other organizations. It was there was just like pipeline in Boston from Boston College up to the Red Sox and, and um, it just seemed like such a, um, a faraway place, inaccessible place. So when Larry um, got involved with the ownership group that bought the Red Sox and it became a possibility, it, it was uh, kind of 
stunning to, to both me and, and Sam Kennedy, um, who's uh, followed the same path as I did from Brooklyn High to the Padres on the business side. And, and then so then when it became a possibility and, and at the assistant GM level, it was one of those moments where you, know, you kind of stop in your tracks and reconnect with your 12-year-old self and, and realize that you know a lot of your dreams are coming true. So forever grateful to Larry for, um, for bringing us over there. Um, and it, t- it did. It took a while. You know, you get kind of calloused in baseball where you, you, you bury that 12-year-old self a little bit. You, know, you go through the course of your day and you're not appreciating that you're in a big league clubhouse, that you're making decisions that impact the team on the field, that you're dealing with players. The, a lot of the coaches are players you, you for instance that you worshipped you know when you when you were a kid and, and and that unfortunately is something you become a little bit callous to but um for the first few days weeks back in boston that was uh i was definitely more open to that so you know there were a lot of moments that really resonated with me and were personally meaningful ben charrington once joked that the 2002 red sox when new ownership took over felt like a startup Mm-hmm. Did it did it have that feel to you? Yeah, yeah. The first couple of years it did. Um, I think especially, um, you know, after I sort of stumbled in, into the GM job and um, at a point in my life where I hadn't really led anything before or, or, or even really managed people before, um, out of uh, sort of, I guess as a defense mechanism, I surrounded myself with a lot of people who I knew were like all in to make the Red Sox better and passionate. And so it happened to be Ben and Jed and a number of guys who I'd worked with for, for those nine months at the Red Sox and, and I saw were, were committed to doing whatever was necessary to help to help turn the Red Sox around. So then you didn't do this on purpose, but then you look up and you have, you know, six, seven, eight guys who are all, um, we were all, you know, in our late 20s. Um, none of us had kids at the time. And you know we're working the 80, 100 hour weeks, just pulling all nighters, like trying to, trying to make the Red Sox better. And it was you know a lot of us lived together, eight of us lived together in that first spring training, and it did it did feel like a startup. And and we had a lot of work to do. You know the scouting reports at that time were under the old system were were like on carbon paper in triplicate. You know the red, yellow, green. We had no software, we had right. no technology, so we were in a lot of ways like starting from scratch, trying to build systems that could. Um, get us up to speed and help give us an advantage. So it was, it was, uh, it was a ton of fun. We probably, um, all of us have probably never had more fun in baseball than we did kind of, um, you know, starting to put our stamp on the Red Sox and build something that we all believed in. Speaking of Ben, you once hit a golf ball in your office <laughs> that hit him straight yeah. in the forehead. Has he ever gotten you back in any Man, sort of what, form? What a rat. He keeps telling that story. Well, no, it was, it was printed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, we, we had a, we had a lot of fun in the office. Um, as I said, like we were all single and pulling a lot of late nights and after games there'd be a couple adult beverages involved and um, I think yeah, that night we were, you know, blowing off steam after a loss. We were, you know, instead of putting uh, practicing putting in the corridors of the basement offices at Fenway, we we went from you know, went to sand wedge, pitching wedge, nine iron, and pretty soon we were up to driver and, <laughs> which is not a good idea. I, yeah, I wouldn't imagine. I don't recommend that at home, but uh I think I sliced one. Ben, of course, was not participating in the hijinks. He was at his desk pouring through scouting reports, which, if you know Ben, is certainly in character with him, the hardest worker of all. And, uh, yeah, the ball ricocheted off a door frame and then struck him in the forehead. And there was a, the ball had a, a little speck of Ben's blood on it. And once, uh, once we realized Ben was okay, I asked. Uh, Signed the golf ball with a speck of blood on it and handed it to him. Told me had a lifetime contract. <laughs> uh, 
we know you were the youngest GM in baseball history at 28. That's been well documented. Did you feel confident that you were ready for the job at that age? No, not at all. Um, yeah, it was just something that, um, yeah, I was in charge of the GM search. And obviously Billy Bean was, you know, the, the first choice. And he ended up uh, turning the job down. And then and J.P. Ricciardi also decided to stay in, in Toronto. So it was getting late in the process. And ownership was probably frustrated with uh, my horrible search <laughs> at the time and, and, and asked me to do it. And it was something that... You know, I, ha- I did have some reservations about from a personal standpoint just because, um, you know, I definitely relished my anonymity and was still in my 20s and having fun and I knew my life would change. But from a baseball standpoint, it was, it was, it was you know, something you just can't turn down. Sure. You know, I wasn't stupid about it. And, and I also was buoyed by the fact that I knew there were all these great people um, at the Red Sox that I could lean on. And it was sort of, I felt more like a group of guys taking over the Red Sox, not just one person. So I knew I'd have great support, but I, I wasn't ready from a, a emotional mature, uh, intelligence or, or from a, a maturity standpoint. You know, that's something that I had to kind of grow into. You made, obviously, a lot of moves during your time in Boston. Mm-hmm. Probably none more important than the signing of David Ortiz. Did you ever imagine, when you first brought him on, that he would become this larger-than-life icon of the franchise? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, we, like I said, we signed David Ortiz to, to a one-year deal, and we ended up with Big Poppy. So we, were, we weren't expecting that. But I will say um, we were sold on, on his bat, you know, being, being a middle-of-the-order bat. If you, and it, it wasn't any great scouting job. If you go back and look, I think he had, he had like, uh, 28 home runs or something um, the, the year before with Minnesota and got on base a ton. He was already a productive big league hitter. It was just an era in baseball where tons of people were, were hitting home runs. And, um, you know, he uh, he was already, as I said, he was already a good hitter, but he was he needed an opportunity where he could um, he could come somewhere that kind of let him play to his strengths. And in Minnesota at the time, they were really teaching like a strictly opposite field approach, strictly line drive approach. And David David was someone who could use the whole field, obviously, but he was more of a power bat. Who who um, he had a couple holes at the time, you know, in and up, and he needed he needed uh, repetitions to close those up, and and he did. But if you go back and look at the I mean, his signing at the time, we didn't even have a press conference. Uh, we had a teleconference. But if you go back and listen to that at the time, I said, you know, hey, look, we think that David Ortiz can be a middle of the order bat for the Red Sox. So we, we, you know, we felt like he was going to be a key bat for us, but we didn't think he was going to do what he did. And then to prove it, you go back and look at his playing time the first half of the 2003 season. He was in a rotation, essentially, with uh, Jeremy Giambi, who we also traded for that, that winter, Kevin Millar, who we also signed that winter, and then early in the season, Shea Hillenbrand as well, rotating at, at thir- third base, first base, and then um, Bill Miller, who we also signed. So David Ortiz hit, I think, all two home runs the first half of the 2003 season and in mid-May had his agent come and ask me for a trade somewhere where he could play more regularly. Um, Fernando Cusa came to talk to me and I told Cusa at the time that you know, David was someone we wanted to get every day at bats, but we just needed to um, you know, pare down the roster a little bit. So we ended up trading Hillenbrand instead of David Ortiz, which I guess that was a good decision in that sight. And David uh, got regular playing time and ended up hitting, I think, 30 close to 30 homers in the second half of the season and was often running as Big Poppy. I love those what-ifs. You know, oh my God, yeah. In Hollywood, those are great. What if this guy had played that role instead of that guy yeah. in baseball? Uh, here's a what-if for you. Do you ever think about how the course of history may have changed if the A-Rod trade had actually gone through? Uh, yeah, sometimes. You know, I, I, I look back on I think um, 
it, it's hard to say, you know, because we, we, we were really getting, I think, I think it was three years uh, left of, of, of A-Rod at the time. Right, before four, the opt-out. Four, five, six, it was four years, it'd be four years. Right. Four, oh, four, oh, five, oh, six, oh, seven. And I think for three of those years, he ended up being the best player in baseball, you know. So from an on-field standpoint, it certainly would have helped us. And then I think his life might have turned out a little bit, his career would have turned out a little different too. He would have been able to stay at shortstop. He wouldn't have been in a position where he was kind of in, in Jeter's shadow a little bit and all the different interpersonal dynamics that that created. So he might have been able to be himself more, maybe grow into a leadership role earlier in his career instead of this uh, post-playing renaissance that he's had right. where he actually is demonstrating some of those qualities. So who knows? I, I do think, you know, from our perspective, maybe the biggest biggest negative would have been, you know, John Lester being in that deal and we were we would have been short on, on pitching going forward, although Brandon McCarthy was coming back in a separate deal at the time. So, yeah, who knows? It would have been... A-Rod and Maglio Ordonez in, in, uh, in Red Sox uniforms. And, um, you know, at, and, and then we, we would not have had Manny. And, uh, and Nomar would have been traded, I guess, as it turns out, you know, uh, six months before he ended up being traded in 04. As a, as a beat writer on those Yankee teams, I could say my life would have been very different if you had acquired <laughs> A-Rod. Um, one more hypothetical. You nearly hired Joe Madden to manage mm-hmm. the Red Sox. You ultimately went with Terry Francona. Uh, do you think that 2004 Red Sox team has the same run with the exact same team and Joe Madden running the uh, Well, we definitely would have had um, more zoo animals in the clubhouse. Than <laughs> our, our players kind of filled that role that year for us. We didn't need the zoo animals. i say you're Johnny Damon. That was <laughs> enough, right? Um, you know, I think it worked out best for everybody. Uh, so after the 03 season, when we moved on from Grady Little, we had this managerial search and... Um, the two finalists ended up being uh, Terry Francona and Joe Madden, and we and we we chose Tito, um, in part because we thought his personality was just the right fit for that team, but also because he had managed before, he had some experience, and it's tough to bring uh, a first-time manager not named Alex Cora in, in, into Boston. I think AC would be awesome there, but. Um, I felt like Joe was so untraditional and so unique, and. Um, would would have a lot of critics early because he didn't he didn't fit the mold um, that if that I felt like um, Boston with a really talented team that um, would define its success by whether it got to the World Series or not would have been a tough first job for him and as it turned out he got to his first opportunity came a couple of years later at the complete other end of the spectrum of expectations in Tampa which at the time was basically a petri dish where he could experiment and be himself and you know had all young players so he could define the culture instead of in Boston he would have had there was a pretty well established veteran culture a lot of uh, strong personalities already in the clubhouse I think it wouldn't have gone quite as well for him he would have ultimately had success because that's who he is but I think he got his perfect first job in the in the, the petri dish of, of Tampa at the time and Tito was was definitely the right guy to empower those players um, make them feel connected to a bigger vision let them be themselves and um you know, shoot, Tito won the World Series his first year there. So I think that that shows it ended up working out great for everybody. Rewind a few weeks before you made that hire. Poker players always talk about how they remember the bad beats more than the big wins. Mm-hmm. What's your, your, aside from watching the ball go in the stands, what's maybe your one memory that stands out from Game 7 at Yankee Stadium 2003? Oh, I mean, you know, the uh, couple, a couple, you know, um, just when the, the, the eighth inning when everything was was falling apart, and um, you know when uh, when Grady went went to the mound, and then and then um, 
you know, Pedro, Pedro stayed out there. It, it, it was, uh, it was just a tough moment for, for everybody because not because, you know, look, Grady Little didn't lose us that game. That, that's, uh, you know, the way history is, is written. They need heroes and villains. And there, there were a lot of different things that, that, that went into that game. But, um, you know, we had done such a good job all year. It was probably still like the most fun team I've ever, I've ever been around. And, and I think still has the record for the highest slugging percentage ever for a team, I believe. And it was just, um, it, it was a team that didn't have that high expectations that really kind of surprised everyone with guys like David Ortiz and Kevin Millar and Bill Miller really surprising people and, and making a name for themselves. So it just seemed so unfair to watch it crumble before our eyes in the eighth inning. And then obviously the Boone walk-off was a dagger and um, experiencing it, you know, behind home plate um, in a delirious Yankee stadium with uh, some Yankee fans who weren't shy. It was definitely, you know, that, <laughs> knew who you were. That, the walk of shame out of the scout section down to the clubhouse was something that definitely stayed with me and then going into the clubhouse. And that's the most tears I've ever seen in, in a major league clubhouse. But I think um, that experience for all of us, um, the players especially, but also us in the front office, um, served as tremendous motivation. And I think we went out and had a pretty aggressive um, offseason. You know, we acquired Kurt Schilling and Keith Falk, and then you know the 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 best part where, where where my brain usually goes after suffering through the painful memories of Game Seven Oh Three is is fast forwarding to to Game Seven a year later, back in the same spot at Yankee Stadium, and how sweet that celebration was in large part because of what we'd been through just the year before um, with the painful walk off in Yankee Stadium, but then really a century of. Uh, uh, you know, sort of painful memories at, at the hands of the Yankees. So we felt like um, there was a century-long catharsis that 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 happened, and and the '03 experience made it real for our players who hadn't been part of Red Sox history, but had just experienced '03. When you think about Game Seven and '04, obviously a lot goes into getting there. Mm-hmm. Down '03. Mm-hmm. What what point during that series did you first realistically think we can make this comeback? I think because I'm when, sure it wasn't walking off the field after 198 in Game Three. No, that definitely wasn't <laughs> it. Um, I think it was when we when we got it back to New York. Yeah, so Ortiz uh, walks off Game Four, and that was more a feeling of of relief. Like, okay, we're alive. Um, we didn't get swept by the Yankees um, to end the season, which we felt we were the best team in baseball. Um, we have a pulse. And then when he did it again after Game Five, you know, it was that was such a like surreal, heroic act on his point. Like who wins back-to-back CS games, you know, with walk-offs by themselves? It just doesn't happen. It seems so um, impossible um, that you know after after the celebration died down, and we're like, okay, we're going to New York, and um, you know, we have a ton of momentum right now. They never thought they'd be going back to New York after Game Three. Um, you know, we might be able to do this. Like, all we have to do is win one game, and then we're not losing to Game Seven because they'll be, you know, all the pressure will be on them. So that flight to New York was uh, was a really optimistic flight, and we had we had a ton of momentum on the heels of back to back walk offs going to New York. Now, I think the feeling was other guys have to step up. David can't do this by himself. That was felt and expressed at at the time as we headed to New York. When you think back to Game Four against the Cardinals, you guys win the World Series. Mm-hmm. Any any one moment sort of stand out for you in terms of was it just watching the last hour? Yeah, you know, I snuck down to 
um, the clubhouse and, and kind of right outside the tunnel leading to the dugout in, in, in the ninth inning or maybe with one out in the ninth inning. And um, the thing I'll remember most is uh, Johnny Pesky down there who'd been in, in the Red Sox organization at the time for like 60 years, something ridiculous, and such a good guy and really represented um, a lot of the best um, attributes and values of, of the Red Sox franchise. Sitting there in his old age, um, watching the game unfold on TV and this, this uh, look of, um, of hope and expectation and wonder on his face as he, as he watched us try to get that 27th out of, of uh, Game 4 of the World Series was, was pretty incredible. And then being able to give him a quick hug and, uh, afterwards and then head out on the field to see the player, that was great. But I, I, the look on Johnny Pesky's face is probably something that uh, those, those who got to be there and see it will never forget. The Red Sox win again in 2007. The 2004 team uh, was not made. I think there was one homegrown player in yeah, the one, roster. Yeah, Trot Nixon was the only homegrown player. And the 2007 team, I think, 12, was 12 of the 25 at one point in the postseason. Was, was, even though 04 was the one that ended the drought, mm-hmm. was 07 maybe a little more satisfying in a different way for you? A different way, yeah. I mean, 04 was, op- was special for obvious reasons, and, and 07 was special um, for less obvious reasons to the people in, inside the Red Sox, just because we... We really were operating on, on um, dual tracks when we took over. We were trying to maximize this tremendous core of players that we inherited at the Red Sox by improving um, the, the, the bottom half of the roster and trying to win, and, and that came to a head in, in 2004 with the World Series. But simultaneously, we were putting in you know, new scouting department, new scouting systems, new player development department, new player development systems, bringing a lot of new people, getting everyone on the same page and trying to trying to build organically um, through the draft and really investing in that. And it did, it yielded a lot of you know, returns. With, we, we hit on some players each year. As 02 was Lester from the draft. 03 was Papelbon. 04 was Pedroia. 05 was um, um, Ellsbury, um, Buckholz, Lowry, uh, yeah, and so on and so forth. So that homegrown group then coming up and and uh, you know Pedroia and Ellsbury hitting one two in, in in the lineup and having a great World Series. Just really in Papelbon getting the last out, really was meaningful to the hundreds of people at the Red Sox in scouting and player development and baseball operations who were involved in that less glamorous work behind the scenes of going out to scout these players, sign them, develop them, integrate them onto the major league roster. So that. Probably that championship probably resonated more uh, throughout all of baseball operations because it was the product of many years of work instead of just you know a few off season transitions. When you took over in Chicago, you had kind of a five year plan in mind. Was there a point during the beginning year or two years where you thought this is exactly as it should be going, or was there a point where you thought maybe this isn't going to happen in five years? Uh, there were a lot of a lot of low moments, you know, when um, when obviously things. We're, we're not good at the big league level, and that was, you know, in part by design, but still really painful to, to suffer through. And then, you know, at times even, you know, the some of the young players that we did have weren't performing in the big leagues. It was tough. And then, But when, when we'd have setbacks with our prospects in the minor leagues or guys wouldn't perform or guys would get hurt, and there were a lot of days when we were staring up at the, the big magnet board in our office with, you know, the sort of five years' worth of, of roster and, and payroll construction, projecting out your prospects, just staring at the board, thinking we're short like even if all these guys pan out and it's best case scenario which doesn't happen in baseball with prospects like we still need we still need 
four, five, six more guys. And there's only one draft per year, and there's only one trade deadline per year. And it was hard to see how it would come together as quickly as we needed it to in Chicago. And um, it, all that did for us was underscore that we had very little margin for error, that we had to nail all our first-round picks, we had to be productive in the international market, and that we could not um, look past any opportunity in trade to turn an older um, player with, with uh, less club control into a talented young player with more club control. And so that helped keep us really single-minded. And, you know, we traded 40% of our starting rotation three years in a row. And anytime a player started to perform at the big league level, we traded them um, for prospects. And that was not necessarily popular at the time with a segment of our fan base, but that empty feeling of staring at the board, not knowing where the talent was going to come from, served as more than enough motivation for us. You talked about watching Johnny Pesky the night mm-hmm. in Game 4. It's been about 18 months since Game 7. Any one memory stand out for you? <laughs> um, you know, that one was, was special for me because I got to experience it with my son, uh, who at the time was 8 years old and was uh, staying up later than he probably ever had uh, <laughs> for Game 7 and was sitting there and, and um, got, to, got to see the game through his eyes, which was really cool because in, in a way... I was seeing it through my own eight-year-old eyes at the same time. So, seeing the um, you know the 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 arc of that game and the emotions that it brought out play out um, in his little eight-year-old head really was a, was a cool experience for me. And I was trying to you know keep him keep him level-headed and calm and not get too high and too low. And you know there there were a lot of moments when it looked like the game wasn't going to turn out the way we wanted. And I, and I was trying to, you know, felt like I was kind of preparing him to be, to feel it, but not be too heartbroken, not be too devastated. Um, and then when it turned out the way it did, you know, getting to see the, uh, the sheer joy in his face and share that with him was something I'll never forget. You were voted sporting news executive of the year after that season by your peers. What does it mean to, amazingly you didn't win it in Boston, which surprised me when I went back and saw that. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to get that kind of recognition, not just an award, but an award from your peers? Yeah, you know, because I had won other, you know, recognitions or awards or whatever, but not from not from the, that award, as you mentioned, from my peers. So it, it, it was more meaningful to me than I expected it to be because... Um, it did bring me back to getting the job at 28 and being a bit of an outsider. Now everyone expects um, you know, GMs to, no one's surprised when, when there's a, a GM named without playing experience, without decades of experience in the game, without having played in the big leagues or scouted for, for 20 years. But at the time it wasn't commonplace. And so probably more than I admitted to myself, um, I was aware that I was an outsider and I kind of carried that with me. So I felt like I was trying to, I needed to prove myself not only to the fans and to ownership and, but to the other GMs as well. Um, and so, you know, obviously, you know, there've been ups and downs along the way in, in a couple of world series, but, but winning that award resonated with me more than I thought because it felt like I'd come full circle and maybe earn, earn the respect to my peers, which which is, should always be important to everyone. Another honor that came your way after that year, Fortune Magazine named you the world's greatest leader, <laughs> which I know you called patently ridiculous. That one didn't resonate with me quite the same way. <laughs> who's, who's the best leader you've ever worked with? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think Kevin Towers. You know, he did it effortlessly. Um, he was... Very courageous, and that rubbed off on people. He made the people around him fearless. He was a great listener and made people feel empowered and connected to a broader vision 
even if they were, in my case, I was really cutting my teeth and learning. But at the time, he made me feel like the most important person in the world, and that my opinion was really valued um, before it deserved to be, or maybe even before it was. He, um, he made it easy to be passionate about your job and have fun and get the most out of life at the same time. It wasn't like an either-or um, situation where you had to choose between, you know, um, having a good time and, and, and being a good employee. He was able to, and that's hugely important in baseball when you, when you play 162 games, 183 days, plus spring training, plus the postseason, plus the offseason. If, um, if you run an organization where the people feel like they are strictly making sacrifices in order to do a good job and, 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 and they're missing out at home or missing out on the rest of life, I don't think that's a good formula for long-term success. And KT led by showing that you could uh, really enjoy every moment of being at the ballpark and, and have a, you know, a robust personal life at the same time. So he was just, um, by example and intentionally, he was really a tremendous leader. And I think that's um, proven to be true when you look at how many people have talked about in, in, in uh, the days following his death, how many people have talked about how impactful KT was on their careers and their lives, that um, he really was a great leader. You talked before during the rebuilding process you would trade performing veterans yeah. for, for prospects. You've now sort of flipped that a little bit. Once your team starts having the success, three straight NLCS as a World Series, mm-hmm. last summer you traded away one of your top guys and a few other prospects for Jose Quintana. Mm-hmm. Uh, does the thought process change as you're having success, knowing that now you have to find ways to keep this success going. Yeah, you you have to you have to think long and hard about where you are in the success cycle, um, what your short term, medium term, and long term expectations are. Your what your short, medium, and long term opportunities are. What your short, medium, and long term risks are. And it's more of a nuanced process with with um, um, you know sort of a, a more difficult balancing act than when you're simply building. It's obvious what you're doing. You're you're trying to create value in the short term and trade it for, for long term value. And that and the, you know the the only difficult part of that is creating that value, figuring out the timing when it's right to transact and capitalize on it, and then picking the right guys. Um, but that's fun. Um, and and when you get on the other side, and you know winning is fun, but you know making some uh, compromises, sacrifices. Uh, in order to maximize your window and win isn't fun. Like no, one, you know, no one likes trading away their prospects. It's um, you fall in love with these guys, um, you respect them on the field, off the field. You get connected to this thought in your mind about their future and what they're going to do for your big league team. And um, but you know, you I think have an obligation to to try to win the World Series and, and, and try to maximize the window that, that you do have. So balancing short-term and long-term is really hard on an emotional level. You have to go in um, knowing that, you know, these are trades you're not going to quote-unquote win, right? Like what we were doing the first three years in Chicago, it's relatively easy to quote-unquote win those deals because you're trading guys with half a year left, a year and a half left. You're getting the entire careers of, you know, a handful of other prospects. So those are easy deals to feel good about. They're sort of low risk in a lot of ways. But um, the other deals, when you're, you need to hit on what you get back, and they need to contribute to, to winning teams and teams that can go deep in the playoffs or in the World Series. Those are deals that um, you know they're not going to look great on your resume, and and you know that going in, and you don't care. And I think you have to get to a point in your career where you don't care about individual transactions or your reputation or how it looks. It's all about winning, and it's all about 
you know, giving your team the best chance to win a World Series year after year after year. So it's, it's actually harder to get to that point than you might think because we all came up in this game um, trying to find young players, believing in young players, trying to incorporate young players onto your major league team. Getting younger is hugely important. So when you're going the other direction, it can be a hurdle. And you've seen the game kind of reach this paralysis right now um, in transactions where teams just don't want to give up their prospects. And I think there are some situations where some teams haven't necessarily been aggressive enough maximizing an opportunity to win now. And so I'm actually, I am proud of the fact that maybe we've given up some future value and a lot of future value, but I think we've done it um, knowing that it, it's, it's to win. And, and as long as um, we keep winning at the big league level, it'll be worth it. I mean, if Glaber Torres goes on to a Hall of Fame career, that trade was still worth it for the impact Chapman had on your team. Yeah, that year, right? and that was that was the riskiest one, and and and, and you know, um, I'll admit in some ways like the least rational one, right? Because <laughs> we're trading a, a player we really believed in his entire career, six seven years in the big leagues, for um, what could have been um, two months. It turned out to be. Uh, there was a very important third month involved, <laughs> which was the plan um, with the role as Chapman. But that one's almost impossible to defend um, in a vacuum, right? From a purely like rational basis, that that one we couldn't defend it, and we knew it at the time. Like that trade doesn't make sense in a vacuum. But in our situation, um, we knew we had a legitimate chance to win the World Series. We also knew there were some things happening in our pen where it was going to be obvious to everyone real soon that that was our Achilles heel, and we didn't think we could win the World Series without. Um, adding a dominant back-end guy. We tried a lot of different ways to do it without giving up um, a guy like Gleiber, but um, we did not have that opportunity. So that was a trade we made in order to win the World Series. And um, a lot of us, uh, uh, before we hit the pillow every, every night, are thankful that we won the World Series, that we don't have to ever look back on that trade with regret. When you started uh, with the Red Sox, you were one of the few teams that used, you really used analytics. Now all 30 teams have analytics departments. It's widespread. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a constant search for that next competitive edge? Yeah, no doubt. Throughout baseball, research and development is as important as anything, which is probably a phrase you never heard in the game you know, 20 years ago. Um, but I, I think the fact that um, a certain type of analysis has um, proliferated the game so much and created such a flat environment throughout the game has created... A, a number of different consequences like one is as you mentioned like that that deep dive search for the next competitive advantage that piece of proprietary um, insight that you might be able to exploit for a couple of years to your club's advantage before the other 29 teams catch up um, two it's placed a great amount of significance on your organization's ability to bring data and information and insight from the front office or from your analytics department down onto the field with the players. So there are teams that do you know, great analytical work but can't necessarily seamlessly get it onto the field. And there are other organizations that do a fantastic job of, of be, all being on the same page and getting it to, getting it to be seamless. So that's um, an interesting new dynamic within teams and a separator for a lot of organizations. And then and then the final consequence is I think it's, it's – um, Put it put a, a a renewed emphasis on the human being. You know, ironically, where the pendulum swung the other direction, where if everyone's looking at similar numbers and everyone's doing the deep analytical dives and using sophisticated advanced um, metrics, then there's a competitive advantage in just knowing your people and understanding them as human beings, treating them well as human beings, and um, trying to do a good job making decisions based on the unquantifiable stuff, which is 
really, really important. Is it difficult ever to get players to buy into analytics or mental skills or sports science or any of it that was kind of stuff? It was 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. These days, I think players lose respect for the organization if you're not giving them the best information. You know, I mean, let's be honest. Our players are, are all millennials now, and they don't want to just know what to do, and they don't want to know how to do it. They want to know why they should do it. And so I think the best approach is just being completely transparent with your players and saying, you know, here are the most sophisticated tools that we have. Um, here's how you can get real-time feedback on what you're doing, and here's how you can possibly get better by using this information. And the modern player, almost without exception, is incredibly open-minded and curious and wants to use that type of information. And if, And really, if you don't provide it, they're just going to be going elsewhere to find it. So, you know, pitchers, there's a reason pitchers go to driveline in, in, in the off season to try to get better. And you should provide a similar environment within and similar opportunity to improve within your own organization. There's a reason hitters go to uh, swing gurus to make over their swing and add launch angle and do everything else in the off season. You should provide a similar environment, not sacrifice your principles. You should be trying to create the type of all players that you want. What, how you define a winning player, that's what you should coach your guys towards. But you should be open-minded about using data and not tippy-toe around it, I think, these days. A few quick hits before we finish up here. Sure. You performed music in several notable locations, <laughs> including the Paradise Rock Club, which is a Boston University alum I certainly uh, enjoy, yes. uh, to the Boston Symphony Hall, Metro in Wrigleyville. What's the best place you've ever gotten to play? Uh, definitely Boston Garden. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, got to got hauled out on stage to play to play the encore with Pearl Jam at Boston Garden while we were winning a game across town at Fenway Park. So that was that was a pretty pretty cool moment. Kind of still can't believe it happened, but that was a lot of fun. We know you're good friends with Eddie Vedder. Mm-hmm. When you think about music, is there one act you can go back in time and see live? Who would it be? Um probably probably see like Hendrix, right, as he was bursting on the scene like in England when he was, you know he had like, you know, Pete Townsend and John Lennon in the audience realizing they were uh, seeing something that had never been done before and that the, the world around them was changing. Like, it would have been cool to be in that audience, too. Did you really once kick a 53-yard field goal? I did. It's my athletic claim to fame. I, <laughs> I, I had a pretty significant tailwind behind me, and it clanged off the crossbar and went over. But I have witnesses. Would have counted either way, right? Among them, Jason McLeod of the Cubs and Jeff Kingston of the, uh, of the Mariners, if you need to confirm it. Best advice Bill Belichick ever gave you? <laughs> uh, the only real advice Bill Belichick's ever given me was after I asked him how to manage um, success across the organization after we won the World Series in 04, um, he told me we were f***ed. <laughs> All right. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, your grandfather and great uncle won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for Casablanca in 1944. We saw Kobe win an Oscar this year. Is that on your bucket list? <laughs> no, definitely not. It's one thing I'll definitely um, never accomplish, but very proud of um, my great uncle, who I got to know and really served as my surrogate grandfather, and of my grandfather, who passed away in the 50s and I never met. But um, it's, uh, it's really cool that my dad um, is the proud owner of both... Uh, an Academy Award for, for um, Best Screenplay and the uh, 04 World Series ring with the Red Sox, which I gave him. So proud of my dad for playing an instrumental role in, in, uh, in both those accomplishments. We saw Brad Pitt play Billy Bean in a movie. Who plays you in your story? Oh, God. Um, no one good looking, that's for sure. <laughs> I, one time I was 
<laughs> at the All-Star game in uh, – in 93, when they had that ridiculous like red carpet thing that all the employees had to walk down after the players, someone, uh, someone I can't believe I'm telling the story, but someone from, someone from the crowd, when they saw me, yelled out, look, it's Doogie Howser. <laughs> so I've been trying to live that down ever since, but I'd like to think it's, you know, um, some, some leading man out there somewhere. <laughs> no one can touch Billy, though. He's king for life. I haven't had uh, Brad Pitt play him. Uh, how his father had changed you both personally and professionally? Uh, I mean... Look, I think it it defines you in a lot of ways. You know, once it once it happens, it's the most important thing in your life by far. So, um, personally, it's you know probably just brought out the best values that I have. You kind of you, you kind of drop everything that is um, counterproductive or you know self indulgent, and and you focus on the most most important things in life and try to lead the best life you can, um, set the best example for your kids, impact them the best way you can. And then professionally, it's just. Uh, I think helped me improve my time management that um, I have to make better decisions about what I can and can't do, delegate a little bit more, plan ahead a little bit more, and have the courage when it's appropriate to walk out the door and, and get home, um, knowing I'll, I'll be back tomorrow with, to, to, to do some more work, which is something that I wasn't very good at before. You've played a key role in breaking two of the most legendary droughts slash curses in pro sports history. What drives you to keep doing this year after year? Um. You know, I think I hate losing. We we hate losing here at the Cubs. All of us, it it, it stinks. I think um, you know a lot of people in baseball, a lot of competitive people generally in sports and in other industries probably hate losing, fear losing more than they love winning, and, and more than they soak in soak in the good times. You you remember and and are fearf- fearful of the bad times. So I, as I said earlier. Um, you know, two things I just can't get away from. They're kind of hardwired in my, my DNA is I'm really competitive and I really love working with people um, whom I respect and, and, and whom I believe in um, towards a common goal, and towards a common vision. And so I get to do that every day. Um, I get to, you know, work in an industry where there are standings and there's sort of a daily um, scorecard, daily referendum on, on how you're doing, wins or wins, losses or losses. And, and so that's great. And I get to do it with people that I really like and really respect and, and that we're all in it to win. We're not in it for personal ambition or glory. We're in it to be part of a winning team. So um, those those things drive me because that only works if you win, you know, if um, if you're if you don't care and, and, and then then, you know, you should get out. And the second I don't care, I'll be gone. I'll be gone long before I stop caring, I think. Theo Epstein, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Theo Epstein for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Our next episode will feature a conversation with Twins Chief Baseball Officer Derek Falvey. We'll talk about his beginnings in the Cape Cod League, Mark Shapiro's influence on his career, Minnesota's surprising run to last year's postseason, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution. That will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. 
Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.